Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. again. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I am here with, as always... Don Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome, everyone. And we are absolutely thrilled today to be speaking with the amazing Max Dashu. Welcome, welcome, Max. Insert applause here. Indeed. And we are so excited today to be talking to you about your new book, Women in Greek Mythography, Volume 2, Book 1. <laughs> and uh, this is the first part of uh, two books that are coming out. And it is just incredible. If y'all haven't gotten it yet, I would highly recommend it through Valida Press, um, V-E-L-E-D-A, www v-e-l-e-d-a dot net um and i have my, my first question dawn actually from that uh -huh. max is valida is that related to the great uh prophetess valida yes valetta well see the oh, thing valetta 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 was not her personal name it was a title and it's related to a whole oh. group of witch names in northwestern europe both in irish and also in uh, germany uh the, in the low countries near the 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 base of the Rhine, the um, the Rhine Delta, basically. So she was one of the Teutonic. She was with one of the Teutonic tribes, right? And she was seems uh, so. There's an argument about that, but yeah, and and you know, this is some of this area is very close to the Netherlands, mm -hmm. so um, that that region, and so it was a title, and there's there's a Gaulish title, Widlua, which means witch. There's an inscription about witches in in uh, in France, and the Irish filet or veled or um, filid, various different spellings of it, which is often translated as bard. So there's this <laughs> complex of names for knower, seer, oracular people, but you know, many cases, women. So Tacitus writes about this prophetess and he calls her Valetta. Right. Which was her title, not her name. And nice. so she, you're saying she might have been a Celt or a Teuton, so we're just not yeah, sure. Yeah, probably, well, the Terry tribe. So, you know, if, once we determine what language they spoke, then we'll know. But I don't <laughs> know if there's anything recorded. Yeah, okay, yeah, because they were in southern, the Terry were in southern Germany. Okay, that's an interesting, yeah. So, yeah, she was in, in, in northern Germany. Oh, northern, oh, sorry, northern Germany. Near the mouth right. of the Rhine, the, along okay. the Lippa River. I'm not even yeah. sure if that's in Germany or Netherlands. I think it's in Germany. I'm pretty sure it's in Germany, but yeah, it's it's, but they're not uh, not quite clear which which where that tribe belongs. Yeah, I thought so when I kept hearing that name. I was like, wow, it's got to be, and I didn't realize it was a title. So that's also very interesting and yeah. not a name. Yeah. Well, when you read the book, you, there's a whole whole linguistic breakdown of all the different strands that are related in these different groups. Oh God, I can't wait! I can't wait. Fascinating. Yeah, I I got the book. Sean has not uh, got it's not arrived yet. So not yet. Um, yeah, so we'll uh, he'll he has a whole world of wonders waiting for him. <laughs> um, so we're gonna start today just talking about chapter one. We'll uh, start at the very beginning, um, which is uh, Titanides, the pre-Olympian goddesses. Um, yes. Uh, Greece and uh, the area around uh, where Greece is today, um, which I found absolutely fascinating because in many ways, we they are given names and they're called goddesses and they're called um, uh, titans, uh, titanities, but in, in many ways, it's all sort of a way of, and you say this in the book, it's a way of trying to sort of explain how we came into being, how the universe came into being, how the universe was ordered. And um, they sort of, uh, you know, give names to things that are more either facets of nature or right. concepts mm -hmm. or the like. Um, 
So yeah, it's the, very it's very inchoate, but forces yes. of nature, I think, is really a good way to put it. And these yeah. are like these are cosmogonies, how the universe came into being. Right. So the origin of things and their progenitors. So they're pro called the protogenoi, you know, the the early generators, progenitors. Yeah, yeah. You and, say and, and what's interesting about it is how prominent the females are in these cosmogonies. It begins yeah. out of the female, and there's several generations of females, and then you know, you, you start with house, which is the inchoate vastness, the great, you know, you could even almost call it like a black hole. I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's just that primordial deep yeah. and that we see in so many cultures. I mean, the Hebrew tohu bohu and the Chinese hundun, and there's many, many different forms of this aluna in ancient Venezuela. Uh, but that, that, that house parthenogenetically gives rise to nooks, night. And so then night becomes the the mother of gay, who is later called Gaia. She's Earth. And Earth is the great ancestor of all the Titanes. So she gives birth parthenogenetically to Uranus, heaven, and Pontus, sea. And then she mates with them. So they become the parents of the classical Titanes. And the, the names of the Titans vary. There's a set of a standard set in Hesiod, I think it is, the of 12. But then others add some and take some away. And then there's larger groups because the standard lists, Thalassa, the sea, a oh, female form of the sea doesn't appear. There are various there are variations in this. So, you know, this is one of the first things when you look at Greek mythography, there is no one standard version. Right. Kind of like Hinduism, there's no standard text. There's nothing like the Bible. You know, yeah. there are these sources that survived we can draw on. But anyway, uh, gay amongst the many, I have a table, I think, on page 57. You do, yes. This amazing table of of genealogy in a way, yeah. Oh, gosh, I can't find it. But anyway, yeah, it because I needed for myself to kind of map it out because these relationships, and they do vary. Thank you. What page is that? Anyway? Page 28. <laughs> oh, 28. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, uh, to see, how, I mean, part of the thing also, in addition to saying powers of nature, are sets of relationships. Yes, yeah. Okay, so, you know, some of the really most important children of gay are Okeanos and Tethys, who are both sea beings, and they give rise to other important groups, uh, you know, generations. And then you have... Uh, for our purposes, you know, in looking at the Olympian genealogies, you have Rhea and Kronos. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in Latin terms, that would be Ops and Saturn, you know, but they are the mothers of the Olymp, they are the parents of the Olympians. Right. And so the Olympians, it's very interesting because there are various Greek texts that talk about the Titanides or the Titanes as the former gods. Or yeah. the earlier gods. The old ones. The yeah. Right. And there is this recognition that there is this deeper generation, you know, pre-patriarchal generation, we can right. call. Yeah. You know, I, was, of, I was wondering about many. that, Max. I was wondering if that's, you know, again, not knowing where, where you take us in the chapter yet. Is that, in terms of your research and this research you've seen, is that kind of sort of the construct, uh, I guess, uh, intellectually or philosophically people look at when they see this is this kind of like are we seeing the successive waves like when we talk about how you have that sort of anatolian matriarchal history and then it gets interrupted or just disrupted by this sort of incursion of the wheel wagon warriors is it kind of like that or is that kind of but you know general it's it's kind of because, you know, there's there's this larger way in which they recognize there was something before the classical Greek gods and that they are primordial and original. They are also demonized and overthrown. There's a battle. And this is a theme that the scholars of all of this, uh, Martin L. West and others, have, have really established that there are very strong Anatolian patterns. And by that, I don't mean indigenous Anatolian. I mean the Indo-European Anatolian language language family speakers like the Hittites and the Luvians. Mm. Hittites, much of these same things about the former gods and the overthrows of you know by one set of gods against another's uh, is all present in the Hittite 
uh, scripture. So there's a way in which, um, in general, the Titanes, the male Titans, are much more of a partnership model, right? Like especially Nereus, who is a god of the sea, and the Nereids, the the sea goddesses, are 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 from him and from Doris, who is is a daughter of Pontos. So, um, where was I going with that? I had a whole. Well, well you said thing. something about a partnership model. What what do you mean by? Wait 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 wait. I'll get there. I'll get there. Oh sorry. Uh, Nereus is described as the old one of the sea and he is kind and wise he's very much of a positive matricultural male in in this this cosmology and, and in general you find that to be true of the titanes the male titanes mm. you know uh, prometheus is another one yes okay you know he is and i talk about this in the book he is like this hero of of a, an egalitarian partnership culture he defends the mother he is the son who is loyal to the mother and to the mother law right and he undergoes terrible punishments from zeus for defying that that order of patriarchal domination but i'm getting ahead of myself so let me back up oh that's but that's just to emphasize to the listener that is fascinating so he's the son who defends the mother and the mother-in-law so he's defending matriarchy against this kind of new male construct Right. He he's okay. So so I'll I'll explain this when I when I give this other part. So what happens in both the Hittite and also the Hellenic model is you have there there are some elements among the male titans that are domination based. So you have Uranus treating Earth very badly, you know, and he forces her to keep within her body her progeny. She has progeny that the Greeks are describing as monstrous. They're earth demon beings. And so he forces her to keep those beings within her womb. And she's afflicted by that and enraged by that. So she eventually goads her children to overthrow their father. And Saturn, oh, sorry, not Saturn, Kronos is the son who finally says, okay, all right, I'll do it. And he takes the diamond sickle that she, or flint sickle that she has crafted and she castrate, he castrates his father, Uranus. And so this is where the story about Aphrodite, who is born from the foam generated by the tossed genitals of Uranus into the sea, this is this is where that story comes from. Right, right. Okay. Right. And so the castration of the father, this is, by the way, something that comes up in the Hittite versions as well. So, all right. Earth eventually prevails. She is oppressed by Uranus, but she eventually prevails. So then she has her son, Kronos, and he becomes the new king of the gods. So you've already got a patriarchal model because this is a very mixed story. It is not pure. There are, there are all kinds of layers to it. Then Zeus overthrows Kronos. And the way this comes about is that Rhea, like Gay, is, or Gaia, is uh, afflicted and oppressed by Kronos, which in this case, instead of uh, what what he does is he swallows her children one by one as she bears them. Right. It's very interesting because the order of her offspring come females first. Yeah. Then, okay. So you have um, out of the Olympians, you have Hestia, uh, Hera and Demeter are born. And then you have, uh, I don't want to have to sit there and name all of them off the top of my head. But anyway, yeah, no worries. Zeus is the last born. And somehow he becomes the most powerful and he overthrows his father. Okay, so that's the second over patriarchal overthrow. Throughout the rest of Greek mythology, he, Zeus is always looking over his shoulder yeah. who might overthrow him. And so there are prophecies from various goddesses and sometimes it's Gaia and sometimes it's Themis, who is another of the Titanides. And they're saying, well, you know, the daughter, the son of this Titanis or the other is going to be powerful enough that he can overthrow you, his father. So both Zeus and Poseidon court Thetis. And uh, this is also, Metis also comes into it. There's two different forms of this story. Right. But then he gets this warning, you know, a, a, a son of this mother by you will overthrow you. So he plots as to how to prevent her from bearing a fully divine son. Mm. And he basically forces Thetis to be, um, forces her into a rape marriage by to a mortal. 
Okay. And there's all kinds of other strands to this story that come out in the Iliad, but we won't go there or in the epic cycle in general. Right. So um, that's one version. The other version is Metis. And again, there's a prophecy that uh, her, her son will overthrow Zeus. And so what he does in that instance is he swallows her. And this is, she's already pregnant with Athena. He swallows Metis and then uh, she's still inside of him. So she sets about forging armor for her daughter who she knows yes. is going to need it <laughs> in a world like this yeah. so then eventually you have the pounding in his head becomes too much Hephaestus cleaves it open with an axe outsprings Athena fully armed from her mother and so there's basically you know this expropriation of the yeah. power of this wisdom goddess and her daughter Athena also is heavily marked by the patriarchal scripts of her father she's a dead daddy's girl who enforces the will of her father. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I love this. I mean, overthrow. yeah, the metaphor couldn't be stronger for, mm. you know, him sort of appropriating all right. of the gifts and, um, and uh, you know, the, the very being of the female goddess, the, the, the creatrix and yes. um, just swallowing it in him to himself and keeping it there. And, you know, she's immortal. So she's still alive in there. Right. And, is... and basically he, he incorporates her wisdom attributes into yeah. him. He takes it, he mm -hmm. takes it, absorbs it from her in many right. ways. And it's, yeah. you know, a very violent act. Yes. Yeah. Trickery, trickery also. The yes. other part of this story that comes in in later texts, and this is more in the Orphic the scriptures but they they tend to be quite late is zeus again is described as swallowing but this time he swallows the entire universe all of the beings including his own progenitors mm. he swallows them into his belly and incorporates them into himself and then he vomits them all back out and this is made as a second masculine birth right. that then puts him in priority over the entire previous previous order of creation so it's a it's a hat trick that's mm -hmm. done by these uh -oh. orphic theologists to put zeus on top of everything and this is something that's also carried by over by the stoics and in other traditions in late antiquity the the primacy the overlordship of zeus which was always there in the olympic theogenies right really becomes um you know dominant to a degree that's like just tremendous yeah and so but that's taking us very far before we leave thetis i would like to uh, return to her since we she's still fresh in our minds because i want to contrast with that conquest narrative the the subjugation of thetis is preceded by something very very different and we only have small fragments of this but numerous scholars have gone into this and the first that I found was Laura Slatkin. And she talks, she mm. brings forth a whole dimension that Thetis, first of all, etymologically, her name means she who places, she who sets in order. I love that. She who puts, and several of the Titanides have names derived from this. She is the order of the, the, the universal, of the cosmos, in a sense. And so... There are some poems that have come through from this Spartan poet in the late 7th century BCE named Alkman. Maybe you've heard of him. He's one of the very most archaic poets. And so he describes Thetis. Well, you know, she's known as a sea goddess who is the leader of the 50 Nereids. And so in the Iliad, she is the silver-footed one who sits in a cave deep in the ocean surrounded by her Nereids. And these, these were very popular divinities among the common people in late antiquity. They never let go of these old goddesses. But anyway, um, the poems of Alkman show her as a creatrix who brings into being two principles, poros and tekmor, the path and the end. And mm -hmm. she sets in motion light and darkness, day and night. And she's described, I think this is uh, Slatkin, I don't have the footnote in front of me. She is a great primordial deity who introduces the light of day and the brilliance of the stars into a chaotic and totally nocturnal world. 
and then the quote from the old Greeks, and poros is as a beginning, tekmor like an end. Mm. And so Slatkin remarks on this, the passages in Alkman reflect the belief that there was not, Thetis was not simply a cosmic force, but the cosmic force, the narrative principle of the universe. Now, this contradicts, of course, the idea that Chaos or Nooks or Gay, I mean, they they are they precede her by several generations, but right. this, this story, and it may be a Spartan story in origin, but Thetis was also very worshipped as a goddess in Thessaly up in the northwest of Greece, and there are temples to her there again, with that very strong sea association. And so uh, Slatkin says that the creative action of Thetis involves not primarily the bringing into being of matter, but rather the discrimination of objects, the ordering of space, the illumination of darkness with light. And so, you know, when she brings about this pair of Poros and Tecmor, there's, there's a whole lot of association of, of these terms, especially poros, can be translated as path, passage, crossing, and even symbolically as resource and possibility. Whereas tekmor can be read as limit, goal, definition, guide mark, or marker, like a racing post. Right, right. So poros is the path taken, the way through, and tekmor is the goal aimed at. And and so Titanus is uh, Thetis is she who sets out pathways, That's and I have a lot more about this in, that I got from Detienne and Verlon, uh, another set of writers who really have written some brilliant stuff about the Titanides and especially about Metis and Thetis, and they talk a lot about navigation and the use of the word tekmor in terms having to do with conjecturing according to the stars in order to map a pathway over the pathless sea. So it gets very cosmological, but it right. has practical applications. Right, because this was a sea, uh, very seafaring peoples, all of all of these peoples around. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, were very concerned with finding their way across the sea, so... And, and, and great, that, that phrase, pathless sea, is incredible. It's like, yeah. exactly... Right, right. And, and even in a sense, because, you know, the cosmos itself is like that. And, and, and you know, the, the, the whole view of the heavens as being like a sea turns up in a lot of cosmologies, right? right? And voyage through space has that quality. And the, oh, so you just said something. I just wanted to, can't think what it was now. Oh, it's gone. Um, That's all right. It'll come back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a friend who um, is a producer, and she I told her about Thetis as she who set things in sets things in order. And she said, from now on on set, she is going to <laughs> require that she be called Thetis as opposed to the producer because she's the <laughs> one who sets things in yeah. order. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so the so the and Fairlaw are very interesting, and they have some more information. They call she's called in Greek. Aetia Eothesis, cause of the uh, good arrangement of the cosmos. Mm. And they also call her the nature and arrangement of everything or the nature of the all. Pantos. So these titles are amazing because when we look into goddess traditions, whether we're in India or in other places, the litanies and the invocations of the goddesses, you find these kinds of titles, you know, mother of the all, this kind of stuff. Right. And so we can see fragments of this in the Greeks. Oh, I know what I was going to say. It had to do with the fusion that took place in Greece between the archaic peoples, the, the pre-Mycenaean peoples, and were indigenous. They were descendants of the Anatolian farmer migrants mm -hmm. coming mm -hmm. out of Asia Minor, uh, as much of the Mediterranean peoples were, and uh, the Cretans and others. So in the book, I talk about the fact that in the genome research, just in the last seven years, it's come out that the Cretans and the Mycenaeans were closely related. Oh, wow. That makes so much sense. Very, very much related. They would yeah. have originally spoken the same language. You can still see it in their art, in the classical Mycenaean art. It can be very hard to distinguish the signet rings. Is this Cretan or is this from the mainland of Greece? Right. What we have is sometime 
around 2200 BCE, there are proto-Hellenic migrants or invaders that come into Greece, into the peninsula. Right. And they become the rulers. And so we have what Gimbotus talks about as the stratification of cultures, right. a ruling class who are Indo-European, but a majority into which the mostly male migrants marry in that are indigenous. Okay. And, and we see it, and you know, the, the thing is, like we always say, she was she'd come out with these these theories and these notions earlier, and now the genetic evidence proves it and shows right. it because what we're and seeing. that's what finally yeah. authenticated her theories. Even Colin Renfrew had to doff his cap and say Maria is vindicated because her theories proved out, and it was the genome evidence that really put the cap on it. The linguists were already in her court as far as the origins of Indo-Europeans in the Ponto-Caspian steppe right. of Western Eurasia. Okay, but anyway, so um, there. It's likely that there were earlier Indo-European migrations because 2200 BCE is quite late. And we have evidence of earlier um, invasions into Eastern Europe out of the steppe before that. But anyway, right. it comes out that about 16 or 17% of Mycenaean DNA is of steppe origin. There's a very small slice also that is of the Caucasus region. Okay. But that percentage before the Mycenaean invasion somewhere in the mid 15th century of Crete, Cretan DNA does not have that component. Right? Mm. So what right. we see yeah. is that the island of Crete was protected by the sea right. from the Bronze Age warfare and invasions that were raging on the various continents. Right, right. And so, you know, we're, we're actually seeing that playing out. So all of this to say, I don't know how I got there. Um, well, I mean, I mean, what just to 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 jump in as part of it, uh, and maybe that helped where where you're coming from with it is that it's this pattern that you know we've talked about you know the, the, among us on this podcast, but you know, a lot of different topics of the matriarchal origins. You see it in the the, the cosmology, the, the you see it in the the mythology of the of the people we're talking about, and then you see this rupture that we now know from DNA and we know from archeological evidence. And now you can really, and this is where I'm fascinated by, you know, where you're going with this, Max, you really see it play out with, you know, you have these origin goddesses who are, who create the universe, who set things in motion and order. And then suddenly you have these constant overthrow, these generational overthrows by yeah. a new order of men, almost like a new wave of wheeled wagon warriors, not to oversimplify it or to find a point <laughs> on it, but right. it feels like that when you hear it. Yeah. And each wave becomes more male dominated, more sort of, you know, yeah. repressive and violent towards these original female um, creatrixes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you have this, you have this and, one. Oh, and there's, this, one more, there's one more piece because but, not to forget the partnership model that's present in right, the funny. Yeah. So that element mm -hmm. is there. And we have to remember because there is the stratification, you know, you have the intermarriage means that culture is being absorbed from the mothers, the indigenous mothers. Okay. So elements of that survived. And, you know, I, as you saw in chapter one, in the Titanides chapter, I have illustrations from the Neolithic yeah. uh, on, on the frontispiece there because that some some through line existed culturally you know it didn't all become absolutely patriarchal because of these conquests or these colonizations there are also elements of the old culture that was carried along and that's important to know i mean there are also important uh aspects of the male models and this is why i emphasize nereus and prometheus um you know and and uh, one more thing about his story before we move on, is that he is tortured by Zeus, punished by Zeus for refusing to reveal the name of the one whose progeny will overthrow him. Yeah. And so, you know, the um, Prometheus Unbound, is it Aeschylus, I think? Mm -hmm. Can't remember. Everybody's yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's Aeschylus. Yeah. Um, it's just amazing because there are these, actually, they might have both written a, a play about this. I'm not sure. Aeschylus. I have to look at my own writing. Yeah, it's Aeschylus. Um, yeah, that, that... yeah, the one that you reference in the book is Aeschylus's version. Okay, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I think his, and then Shelley, many 
thousands of years later comes up. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, these stories yeah. get told and retold. Yeah. So, and right. you know, as as Don was saying, they can become ever more patriarchal. Yeah. But you know, Prometheus is this really noble being, and what I love so much about the part about Prometheus is he's Mercury comes to try and browbeat him into surrendering up the name, and he is refusing no matter what they do to him, and very nobly. But he taunts Hermes about his abject, uh, abject submission mm. to the tyrannical dictator of a, of a god, his father, um, Zeus. And, you know, it's just like, go ahead, fawn on your overlord. You know, he's just like giving it to him. And it's just, right. you, know, I, you know, oh, mother, look what they're doing to me. You know, he I, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but, you know, he he calls on the mother, you know, because to witness the injustice that's happening. And and this is the noble part about the noblest part about the male Titanis is there's this quality of you can do anything to me. I am not going to yield on principle. You know, I'm not going to let you be, make me betray the the divine principles. Nice. So, you know, he goes through this, you know, he's fastened on a hill, a mountain in the Caucasus somewhere and bound up. And Zeus sends an eagle every day to rip out his liver and, and eat it. But Prometheus right. can't be killed because he's immortal. And eventually he's freed. So that's the unbound part of the title. But um, you know, so so that's that's a that's a great story. I'm done now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I just wanna I just wanna sort of add a, another um note to this um chorus we've been singing. You have that brilliant quote um uh that is uh from Aratos. Am I pronouncing that correctly? that uh, about DK and um, uh, Arato says, not yet in that age had men knowledge of hateful strife or carping yeah. contention or din of battle, but a simple life they lived. And it just, I mean, every generation looks back on, you know, the glory days of their youth when life was right. better, but it just has such a strong uh, sort of feeling of cultural memory of a time when there was no war. Yeah. You know, yeah. and yeah. And it occurs in a lot of traditions that Chinese have it. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. Yeah. And that's, so, you know, you know, it's, it's not just fantasy. There is something real to that. There's something, there's something there. Yeah. And I mean, there could that, have been conflict, right. You know, like yes. we're dealing with like ancient, ancient foraging peoples. It's not to say nobody ever bashed another person over the head. You know, but they did not have military technology. They had hunting weapons, right? right? They did not have standing armies. They did not have a state structure. They did not have a patrilineal system. Right. As far as we can determine, you know, about the Paleolithic, their icons were of the female progenitrix, yeah. right? So uh, it's really uh, the ones who are making an assumption and a leap are the ones who maintain that uh, systems of domination, especially culturally structured systems of domination mm. are you know historical and universal right. that is just not in evidence right? i think you know it's interesting max i was just reading something by uh archaeogeneticist and talking about the you know looking at the yamnaya the uh, the dreaded hated yamnaya as i always say i always feel compelled compelled to say uh, <laughs> but one of the things that distinguish them uh, i think this is kind of what what you're alluding to is that there's is you, there, you would have conflict in all these cultures it's part of you can have things that happen with among human beings but they're specific and i'm sure this happens in other places of the world but since we're talking about this particular era right. their specific difference is this is a this is a conquest centered uh sensibility and it's yeah. bands of young men who are taught conquest and spread out because apparently the the genetic record shows that the the spread yes. happens wildly and rapidly really fast Mm -hmm. And they spread in all directions really quickly. And that's a, a pushing and a, a conflict that's very different than the kinds of conflicts, the sort of you know brush fire, minor conflicts you might have had right. in these cultures already. Suddenly you have this explosion, like you yeah. say, of military technology, trained young warriors, and people moving fast. Move fast, break things, as people love to say. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's what yeah. it is. You know? And the genome in Europe is showing this very mm -hmm. dramatically because we're seeing... The Y haplogroups of exterior, it's like the R1B DNA pattern. There's there's certain DNA patterns that are associated with these conquerors. And the mtDNA, the female line, is indigenous. Mm -hmm. right? The older, the older uh kindreds right. are there. 
And so what we're what is turning up, and this is sort of blowing the minds of the geneticists, but we of course intuited this long ago, kill the men, rape the women. There you go. Yeah, yep. you know? exactly. That, that, so that it is a it is a narrative. system, a conquest narrative. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It, it still it still plays out now, not to go far afield, but you can see it playing out not on a physical conquest level, but you can see it playing out on a metaphorical creative conquest level when you watch popular entertainment i'll leave that for another discussion but it's a very <laughs> well you know you see it going on and on it continues we'll, we'll have to go back come back at some point and talk about the myths of conquest chapter because there's a lot in there about nice. the hellenic foundations of rape culture and domination culture in western civ the whole hero narratives and the heroes are almost all generated by rape gods rape women or goddesses and these heroes are born from it and then they become turn become dominator warrior conquerors right themselves like yes Eric and and theseus i don't know how they say that the sales but um that that's a whole that's a whole thing and it what the key part for us what to what you said sean is that they mythically encoded this as the highest values mm -hmm. and so the hero narratives that we see in our movies you yes. Know, the popular blockbuster movies are all about the violent hero. Yeah. You know, the dominator. Right. Exactly. And so exactly. it is absorbed culturally. It's told as entertaining stories, but it's it's basically setting out values and attitudes and behaviors as normative. And and yeah, and having to reinforce it continually yeah. over and over again because it's not natural. We and, have to and, keep and, telling these stories and reinforcing these principles because yeah. they're not natural. Well, and what you said about systemic, it's structural. It is yes. in by this time because how many thousands of years since the Mycenaeans, you know, we're still sitting here and the same scripts are being played out that, you know, were really encoded into the epic cycle, the Iliad, the Odyssey and all the rest of them. Yeah. It's, it's glorification really... of the of the brutal warrior who is, you know, um, women are the prize of my spear. They kill the men, rape the women. Yeah. It's, it's female a really captivity. Point. Yeah. Yeah. Just to, just to you know, close up a tie in that we're on a companion podcast. We're going through, we had gone through Virgil's Aeneid and the Iliad and gone through chapters of that. And now we're on the metamorphoses of Ovid. And it struck me immediately how much God rape or instead of Zeus, of course, it's uh, Jupiter or Jove is just it's it's constant to the point where i had to ask myself can we even publish these episodes because that's all it's about <laughs> at know. that point so i had to plow through the whole I iliad and it was yeah. so bloody it was just like you know the enjoyment of the gore and the slashing and the victors vaunting over the fallen and stripping them of their armor and you know proclaiming i mean so the funny thing about it is that this is what the audience of the bards demanded you know, there's mm. the whole thing about the, this was oral orature before it was written down. I mean, they credit Homer with writing down these epics, but it existed in my times. There's a continuity in the names of mm. the place names that are Mycenaean place names that were no longer in use by the time all this was, was recorded, mm. but there was a continuity that's demonstrable. And there's several uh, scholars like Milton Perry and uh, this other guy, Joachim Latash, who have really just proven this, you know, they just demonstrated the ship lists, for example, in the in the Iliad, show the use of names that were no longer in use, but they were historic names from that period. And they, they uh, carried these stories along. But uh, I forgot where it's going with that. Um, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh the, even the, audience, back then. the audience demanded it just like today our the audience the market demands right. the slasher and the thriller yeah. you know and i mean i see this all the time when i'm looking on netflix there's nothing i want to see so much of it is of that kind of that that not the inspiring narrative but the ugly one you know the one that yeah the one that uh plucks on your root chakra you know that that or stimulates your adrenals to buzzing <laughs> yes exactly that stimulates that fight or flight because it makes it it makes us feel alive yeah, yeah. how how ask how did the the when this was received let's say in the classical era of Greece the how were the titanities looked at then you know now you have 
you've got that wave of new gods, new good, strong warrior gods breaking through, and uh, you have these earlier goddesses. How how did they how did they receive them? How were they looked at? With obviously these were sophisticated minds in those eras. Were they seeing these similar kinds of patterns, like an earlier sense of a goddess realm? And a newer sense, what what was their take on it? They recognized they were earlier, but they had been defeated and overthrown and pushed underground. Same same as happens to the Uranus in in the uh, the Oresteia, you know, mm. and Athena combined together to push them underground because they're they're raging over over um, matricide, basically right. Right. by Orestes. And so you know that's one narrative. But I think your question is a larger one because really we have to separate out what the literate class who we use as sources thought of mm -hmm. these goddesses in which they are present but marginalized even though the Teutonics are supposedly driven underground nevertheless they're still resurfacing you know in various stories but then there's the other question of what do the common people think because this is where the locality of shrines in this one place in Thessaly, the Thessaly, the the Sepia Peninsula, is named after the um, Sepia is the Greek word for I'm trying to think of the word for um, uh, the co the color squid okay. squid okay you know oh. and there's an interesting line about Thetis because she is likened the she has this title of Sepia and it's said about the squid and also about her that she knows the black, oh, I can't remember how it goes. She knows the white, but keeps to the black or the other way around, one, one of those. But you know, there's this, this thing about the squid and the ink of the squid and the black and the white that comes in. But you know, the local shrines are really the key that I found over and over again, because though the overarching literary narratives, the priesthoods of the temples are celebrating the Olympians, in the local shrines, you're still seeing the Moire. We're still seeing here and there a little place where an old woman is still an oracle for Gaia. Mm. And, and, and so there are these different local things. And Pausanias is a great source for this. He was a traveler in the Hellenistic era. He went around gathering traditions about all the temples, what the myths were, what people said. And it varied. You know, unlike what we're taught about both the Greeks and the Norse, there is not one story. Right. There are myriads of local stories which then kind of get capped by the roof of the Panhellenic thing, which is basically the Olympian narrative. Right. But all these local stories are much more particular to the land. And so this place is consecrated to gay or to the fates, to the Moire, or even to the Arrhenius. And uh, some of those sites, like the Arrhenius, there is a shrine near the, basically what was City Hall to Athens, the Pritaneon. Um, there was a shrine to the, to the Arrhenius there. You know, there were still ceremonies that went on. Right. And, uh, and, and we don't know what happened inside the home. You mentioned briefly right. at one point about how uh, the, the shrines within the home in right. like in the kitchen shrine where the baking of bread was a sacred practice the hearth the yes hearth. the hearth so sacred to the home and, and Hestia is almost yeah. missing in action but she's the eldest of the children of rhea and she governs the hearth and so there is a whole resonance there with vesta in the roman context right. names yeah. are related they're both the hearth fire Right. Oh, and Vesta becomes the hearth of Rome itself, but she is the undying fire. So there's a very deep script there that probably is Indo-European because we have this sacred hearth goddess mm. in the case of Bridget in Ireland mm. or in the case of the Vaidilute priestesses of the Lithuanians. Mm. You know, there's there's a woman named Birute who is one of these fire priestesses. This is in the very end of the quite late surviving paganism of the Litvaks up there in, in the Baltics. So there are these there are these indications of fire priestesses that are probably Indo-European. So mm. Hestia could well be a descendant of that. But yes, you're, you're very right to bring that up because women's hearth practices are just invisible to us nearly entirely. But we know that another, maybe what we could call the youngest of the Titanides is Hecate, 
Right. And she also is involved in those home practices. And there were shrines to Hecate at the doorway, sometimes outside the doorway as a protector of the home. Offerings are made to her. And there are, of course, other places like the crossroads, more famously. Right. You know, Hecate's suppers were brought and offerings. Women would bring offerings and sometimes sweepings also from, you know, from their, their home. They would sweep out the bad luck and then they would give it to Hecate to neutralize. Yeah, you know? to transform. Right. But the, but those those practices are, are really... Uh, a lot covered. One more area that I would really signal are the life passages of birth and death. Yes. Yeah. So you have the ceremony, ceremonies of the midwives of Eletheia, who is a Cretan goddess that gets adopted by the Greeks. But we also see Artemis as an overseer of the process of birth. These liminal passages. I, are I would have Sherry go on when you mentioned Artemis. So, but we don't have our we don't have our sound effects. Imagine, uh, yes, imagine cheers for <laughs> Artemis. <laughs> sorry, we, we like to cheer her because she's the matron of the Amazon. So sorry, Max. Go on. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and so, um, you know, the the birth stuff is is something that really, you know, that makes sense to a lot of people. Well, of course, birth. But what people don't realize is that the funeral rites were very much in women's hands. Right. And we see this already in the Mycenaean area with the Larna case, the the limestone ossuaries that were used for the dead painted with rows and rows of women mourning with their arms in a circle above their heads. Mm. And there are numerous examples of these from say like the 13th century BCE. We see that same gesture repeated again in after that, that collapse of the Mycenaean culture, the through line is visible on the painted geometric pottery. Mm. Again, you have women raising their arms above their heads in this gesture of mourning. Right. And they're very prominent on these funerary vessels, the amphorae and the craters of, of the geometric period. We're talking about post 900 BCE. Okay. So this was the really greatest flowering of geometric painting. Right. And these, these women mourners are there, but even much later in the time of Solon in the archaic period and the classical period, we have continual attempts by the Greek patriarchs who basically by that time are, are running almost everything. Right. You know, I mean, there are still priestesshoods and so forth in the temples, but to control women's mourning activities, which were ecstatic and wild, there was wailing and there were processions and they would sit by the grave and chant and sing and, and lament for days sometimes. Right. And they were always trying to say, okay, the women only can stay for the grave so long and things cannot be left at the grave and they have to come back home. And after that, they can't lament anymore. There are all these provisions, wow. that they, all these rules they laid down to try and quell. But this was something that was so deeply rooted that not only did it survive the classical era and into the Hellenistic era, but it survived into the Christian era. And you still have Christian priests making canons in the Orthodox Church saying that women should not bring offerings to pour at graves, mm. milk, nor honey, nor oil, nor wine. And the graves actually had little pipes that went through the ground from the surface, and you could pour offerings into the grave so that it could be imbibed by the ancestors. Wow. Not only that, but in modern times, Greek peasant women still sang the Moirologia, which means the speech of the Norn, of the of the Moire, of the fates. And so they would they would summarize the life of the dead person wow. in these Moirologia chants. And they would make commentary on it. Uh, a scholar named Laura Shannon, who has been amongst these women and talked to them, told me that. There is, to some extent, in this deeply patriarchal peasant society, a curb on bad behavior by men, lest they be commemorated in the Moirologia with descriptions wow. of their misdeeds. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. Wow. You know, but it survived that long. And, you know, it's, it's just amazing, even just the name, that the name of the Moire still was used to describe these female ceremonies. And That's we amazing. cannot omit that the Irish women were doing the same thing in the Kinach. Right. So the Keening women yes. did that same thing. They would recount the life, bad and good, 
of the dead person, you know, and, and they would lament. And this ritual lamentation is something that we have lost to our detriment because yeah. people have no way to ritually express or even just on a gut level roar yeah. their grief. Yes. And do so collectively in a communal way so that that passage is marked. Yes. Instead, you have widows and widowers, you know, parents of dead children left to just kind of deal with it alone. You know, it's like <laughs> after a year, people are expecting you to be over it. And, yeah. you know, people I know who have lost their partners, they grieve for years. Some never yeah. really get over it. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. Grief is yeah. is debilitating yeah. and and. Yeah, I mean, this time of year, it's very much on my mind because yeah, this is a time that really yeah. Well, I'm just I'm here. just a few days away from the anniversary of my mother's death. Yes, and um, yeah, I mean, grief is just so. Eleven years on, it yeah. still can bring me to my knees. Yeah. So well, and and Monica, you know, really, it 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 just took her out the death of first one son and then the other yes. son. And she never got over it. Yeah. It was just like it. It was. She talked about it constantly. You know. Yeah. It was just it 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 was life changing for her, and she did. Eventually, she stopped painting for two years, and then she started up again. But that was always a theme for right. her. You know, yeah. because she started out her 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 career as an artist, God giving birth. And then toward the end, it was the death theme that came through because of the loss of her sons. Right. Yeah. Well, we should probably, um, you know, we could talk to you forever, but we should probably bring to a close this particular episode. But I don't want to leave without touching on Nemocene, Nemocene. Memory? I, I, have, I have a goddess too I want to ask about after that too. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I, I think we really have to talk about nooks as well because yes. she's a but. Yeah, Namasana. I don't know how they would. Namasana is, I guess, Namasana. Yeah, but you know, as an actor, this is a goddess that I should probably still be making offerings to, <laughs> because this whole idea of you know, which you mention in your in this chapter of before we wrote things down, this goddess would yeah. have been vital because how would we remember our laws how would we remember our ceremonies our our weddings our funerals our our songs our you know not just the sort of stories of that we tell around the fire but everything epic yes. poetry and and genealogies all of that would have been would have required us to remember it and this is the core of orature out of which the epic cycle grew, mm. you know, but really in a much more, um, in, a, in a much broader sense, the ability to call to memory, memory oral versus the, some of the scholars of, of uh, orature, the early scholars went back and they studied Serbian epics that were like 40,000 verses, pretty much the length of the Iliad. And these, these bards could reproduce this and they would vary it it was kind of like jazz no two bards would do it exactly the same but right. they all shared this body of stories and repetitious formulas which you see so often you know the wine dark sea and right right Hyde era hera and rosy finger dawn was a particular favorite of mine yes <laughs> yeah so you know those were <clears throat> mnemonic devices to you know help keep the meter and to you know just sort of like they, they would plug them in in certain places. Right. And moderns don't really understand this because we are just in a, a flattened culture. But you have to sort of remember a group of people sitting around a fire and the singing of these songs and the way there's an incantatory quality to that type of oral poetry, yeah. you know, that is somehow satisfying because we see it in Siberia. The Maori have it. There's all these different oral traditions that, you know, the assumption was uh, by modern literate scholars, that orature would be faultier in remembering uh, things, in transmitting old information. But actually, it's the scribes who introduce errors mm. and make up new stuff. And they found, like, you know, look at the Bible. Bible, like the Greek stuff, was orature before it was written down. And so the orature of the Hebrews preserved place names and names of Egyptian rulers and all kinds of information that 
you know, when it was written down, and there's an argument about when in the first millennium BCE that happened, but, you know, some, many sources say not until, you know, like the 900s at the very earliest, others say 500s, 300s, um, that, you know, how did they, how did they know those names? Mm. It was because of orature. Right. So that that transmission is very powerful, and there's this literate bias that we have to deal with. Yeah. You know, literature, orature, they're the same verbal construct. So that's why I'm using that word for yeah. oral tradition. Yeah, but, Annie, Annie Finch is doing some really great work about meter and rhyme in invocation and how... Oh, yeah. Not only does it help you remember it, but it's also... There's something about the effects on the body of certain patterns of meter that mm -hmm. they would have used. They would have known about and used when crafting these, these um, epic poems, but also ritual and, and um, recitations of, uh, of laws and requirements. Like they would yeah. have, they would have specifically chosen metrical patterns Right. for what they were speaking. And it, and it brings about a, an altered state of consciousness. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, you know, I mean, the memory part is really true. I mean, think about how we do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You can't necessarily remember the order unless you sing that part. And right. it's like, oh yeah, element of P, you know. So then it's like, okay, that's when that part comes in. There is something about incantation and memory. Right. That are very closely tied so that so that's a really crucial piece and so that is why the homeric bards and the later greek poets would always invoke the muses the musai as they would say in greek the uh the daughters of nemosine they right. would they would invoke them this was like something that everybody did and we don't realize that you know that there's this goddess component you know that yeah. you have to do this before you begin the poem right and there's some similarities to the way that's structured to what we see in the Vruvuspa in Iceland, where, you know, all holy kindreds I call to witness, you know, there's this, this address that's given to all the beings, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, these are very ancient tropes. Yeah. 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 I love her. Oh, and, and the source that I really got a lot of this stuff about memory from is this scholar named James Notupoulos. Uh, who, you know, he really just argues for the importance of of orature and the difference that it makes, right. you know, um, that, we, you know, we've, we've seen various sources talking about that. Nice. Sean, what did you, what did you want to touch on? Uh, Aphrodite, uh, how does she fit? Because she's kind of, seems to move between the Titans and the Olympians and uh, all, yeah. how, how, could you say, just talk about her a little bit and how she worked and fit in there? Where maybe right. with the cultural roots or historical roots are. Yeah, she's an imported goddess. She comes out of the Phoenician world. Mm -hmm. So she's Ashtart, basically. So the Phoenicians begin colonizing the Mediterranean a little bit before the Greeks. Well, not entirely, but um, some of it. Uh, Cyprus, you have old Paphos in the great temple of Ashtart, who later is called Aphrodite in uh, this is why she's constantly be calling, being called the Cypriot in mm -hmm. uh, the Iliadic literature. Right. But they, So they had to integrate her some way, and they didn't do it consistently. So there are two narratives. And one is she is the offspring from the severed genitals of Uranus that fall into the sea, and then she is seaborn. You know, and this whole thing about the goddess on the half shell. Uh, yes, <laughs> Venus right. on the half Not shell, jelly. right? Right. <laughs> and then the other form, oh gosh, I'm oh, she's the other form is she's the daughter of Vione, who's a very important discussion in her own right. This is mm -hmm. one of the old forms of the name for goddess in Greek, in Helladic, actually. Uh Vione by Zeus. So that's a later attempt to grandfather her into the Olympian pantheon, but she never really belongs in it. Right. And, you know, she certainly doesn't obey the patriarchal rules. There's an interesting thing, though, actually, I realized as I was writing this, that most of the Olympian goddesses do not marry. We have Hera forcibly married to Zeus. Right. You know, yeah. As Jane Harrison says, the turbulent native prince, princess colonized by the patriarchal chieftain lord. 
but um, or something to that effect. Yeah. But Hestia does not marry. She takes a vow before her father. I'm not by her brother. I'm not going to marry. And Athena doesn't marry famously, mm -hmm. but also Demeter never marries. Mm -hmm. Persephone again is forcibly married. So you've got all these rape marriages of Hera and Persephone and and Thetis happening. Who have I left out? Artemis. Huh? Artemis. Artemis, Artemis. Artemis does not marry. Right. Does not marry. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's just interesting. And even, even Leto, her mother, you know, there's not a marriage, you know, there's just these, I mean, Zeus is going around stripping everything in sight and, yeah. you know, generating all these different deities from it. But um, so Aphrodite, there are attempts to kind of like reverse engineer her. So there are stories, which I consider late saying that she came from Kythera, this island south of Sparta, and then gradually hopped across the islands and wound up in Cyprus. So this is exactly the opposite than the historical progression where she's originally Ashtart. And Ashtart is the planet Venus known to the Babylonians as Ishtar, known to the Sumerians as Inanna. So there is a genealogy there as well that goes all the way back to ancient Sumer of the planet Venus, who eventually gets identified as Aphrodite, in the Greek context or as Venus in the Italic one. I saw you hustling that animal over there, whatever you were Sorry, yeah. Uh, <laughs> my dog decided that she needed to be petted right now. So I was <laughs> I was trying to urge her to uh come back later. Oh you, you can for the listener. But, for the listener, I, there's a visible component you will never see. We were at, we could actually see each other. So it's a rarity. <laughs> what what, I, what I'm going to do, because I did want to talk about Nyx, but I'm not going, I'm just going to mention her because what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a, a open access excerpt from chapter one yes. on, and it's going to be on the website at valetta.net uh, under, under the page for women in Greek mythography. And you can see there, the commentaries are open access. The a glossary is there. I'm going to, I'm starting to add, I haven't done it yet, uh, add um, excerpts from different chapters in the books and eventually the index is also going to be online there oh fantastic the index would have added another 40 pages or who knows how much yeah. and the book would have been too heavy and cost too much so that's my workaround and and so there's there's the commentaries are interesting because they're things that didn't fit in the book including what uh Bacus was saying about the etruscans and there's a commentary also on black athena by martin Bernal. Nice. And so I talk about a tiny bit in the chapters on uh, Goddesses Revise about in, in this section on Athena, uh, where I question this this widespread notion that was um, spread by Robert Graves and others that Athena uh, originated from from the goddess Nate in Egypt. The Greeks saw her as the equivalent of Nate, but etymologically, there's no relationship. Hmm. Thematically. They're both warriors. Well, that's somewhat questionable with Nate. She has a bow and arrow. Uh, could be a huntress. That's what pre-dynastic pottery painting shows us. Right. Um, you know, they both are associated with weaving. Uh, they both have animals, but very different animals because Nate has this the crocodile and the click beetle and other animals. And they do both have the snake, however. So there are some points of contact. But um, anyway, I, I, I play all that out in chapter three, where I'm really talking about the origins of the goddesses and how they how they oh, okay. um, transform over time. Nice. We'll have to have you back to. Yeah. Oh, to for sure. Spend time on that chapter. For sure. <laughs> but yeah, uh, there's such a world. We, oh, like, my God. As we always so say, there's such a world of things yeah. to just explore and to talk about because, uh, you know, they're just not talked about enough. Yeah. For some strange reason, people don't hmm. bring these up. I wonder what that could be about. Yeah. That's why I wrote this source book. <laughs> because it, it is, I, I admit, it's dense. It has to be, you know, to pack it all in there. Because yeah. it was a deep dive. And I, that's why it took me seven years to complete it. Yeah. I mean, I had written stuff before that. But I just could not. Uh, it was down the rabbit hole over and over again. 
And I learned so much because I just had to basically read all the Greek literature and the, yeah. and the secondary literature. And it was just, and you, source, you know, that's what you have to do to find the goddesses. Yes. And, yeah. You really have to dig. And source book is a brilliant name for it because it is such a jumping off point for so many things. I mean, so much that, you know, you put, you put as much as you could into this book without it being, as you say, you know, the size of, um, of and <laughs> a, a giant brick, but um, but every every sentence I read, I'm like, oh, I want to know more about that. Oh, I want to yeah. know more about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And eventually, yeah. sometimes there is more. The other yes. thing is, I I rendered 270 illustrations yes. so that the visual testimony comes through because yes. this is much more from the common people. This is why, like, the narrates are very marginalized in the literature. But they are all over the place in the mosaics and the sculptures and folk art, the mm. narrates. In fact, the people in Greece still talk about the narrates, you know, uh, you know, various other forms of, of water fairies that are still very much present. The nymphae or the, uh, you know, the, the goddesses of the springs or the exotica, those 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 others from outside, they still have very much a presence in the folk tradition. So that is really, to me, in a way, the oldest core is what survived. Yes. Zeus is gone, except for literateurs who are obsessed with Iliad. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's this way in which those deep layers of folk memory, yeah. people love it. They don't want to let go of it. They keep it. Yeah, it's meaningful it's, for them. It's meaningful and important to them. And so, yeah, it it goes underground. It changes form it might have you know be given slightly different names but that impulse to honor this feminine divine it it cannot be quashed that's right and you know the love of nature yes i mean you know water is life this is this is a principle yes Infi are all about water is life you know yeah. and they oversee birth and they're all these related things and they have oracular inspiration that they give and you know it's uh it's all in there. All that juicy stuff is right in there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So do you want to touch on nooks before we close? Well, I think, I think we should just close it there because okay. like I, I, I mentioned it so people can actually read the text it's much better than me simply repeating some of it. Great. Uh, so that's fine. Wonderful. And I, I think your statement about uh, Dawn about the need for the feminine divine is a great place to end up. So yeah. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Max. It is Thank always you, such a joy, such Thank a joy you. to have you on as a guest. Yeah. And just talking to you is. I always enjoy it too. You know, I mean, knowledgeable interlocutors, as they would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are always curious in that. I know. I see that. It's that great. It's a good starting point. So, yeah. yeah. So, thank you. Thank you. And thank, thank you, Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you, Don Samuel. And this has been the 34 Circe Salon. Make matriarchy great again. We will be back again soon. Take care. Take care, everyone. And blessed be.